Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, expanded child tax credits have started to hit bank accounts of eligible families. And for many, those monthly payments will be sent out automatically. But some families may need to sign up on an IRS portal. The Biden administration says that these expanded tax credits could reduce child poverty by as much as 50%, and he hopes to get a four-year extension for the program. There's a lot to look out for with these new payments, as anything with taxes is never that simple. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Lauren Egan, White House reporter at NBC News. So the payments, as you mentioned, are going to start hitting bank accounts as early as Thursday of this week. And these payments are, you know, some listeners might be familiar with them. They have existed in the past, but these are now expanded. It's going to be more money and it's going to include more people. So before, if you didn't file taxes or you didn't have any income, you were left out of these benefits. That's all changed now. So that's why the White House is really touting this, saying that these payments are going to have the po- the potential to cut child poverty in half, which is a huge change from how the tax credit used to work before. But still, you know, the program faces some challenges. As you mentioned, you know, the el- eligibility has changed, but you still have to sign up for it. You still have to go onto the web portals and all that uh, to be able to claim this money. Yeah, that's right. And the White House has acknowledged that this is one huge downside of this program. If you don't file taxes, then you have to go onto the IRS website and submit all of your information. Uh, You know, if anyone's ever used an IRS or government website, you're familiar with how cumbersome they can be. So that's going to be a significant challenge. Another problem with it is that right now it's just in English. So anyone who does not speak English as a first language, that's going to be challenging as well. And then a third challenge is just that some people don't know that this program exists. You saw President Biden on Thursday give a big speech about the child tax credit. Vice President Harris has also talked about it. But if you don't know that this program exists, then it's pretty hard to get someone to go and actually sign up with the IRS. 39 million families are eligible and uh, that who, who have already filed taxes or have received the stimulus payments. They're already in the system. They don't need to do anything. But they estimate that there's 4 million to 8 million eligible children that are at risk of missing out on this because, you know, of a number of reasons. These these families need to go sign up for that. So, Lauren, walk us through who's qualifying, how much money are we getting? What are the changes? Sure. So any person who claims a dependent who's 17 years or younger qualifies for this this tax credit. And depending on how old your kids are, that's going to depend on how much money you get. So if your child is six years and younger, you're going to see a little bit more money than if they're six to 17. And the IRS is determining your kid's age depending on how old they are in this calendar year. So, for example, if your child turns 18 in 2021, they are not going to be eligible for this payment. And there's also an income cap. So you're going to get the full benefit if you are a single parent who makes up to $112,000 a year, or if you're a junk filer who makes $150,000 a year. And the payments start to taper out the more money you make with kind of really phasing out once you're above that $400,000 income threshold. 
Now, one of the big features of this, obviously, is that they're monthly payments. You can also opt to get it as a lump sum, you know, at the end of the tax season and all. But that that's one of those things, you know, nothing is simple when it comes to taxes, unfortunately. And that's one of the things that could trip some families up, depending on the tax filing that you used. If you made more money, you know, these prepayments that they're making here could kind of bite you in the butt later on. Yeah, that's right. So again, all of this information has to go to the IRS. So if you, for example, had a kid this year and you think that you should be getting this credit, let's say you got married, you lost a job, anything like that that could impact how much money you'd be getting, you have to file this all with the IRS. Now, for family changes, for example, like if you had your first kid this year, you that can't be uploaded with the IRS until later on in the summer. There's two different IRS portals. One of them is just to register your tax information. So if you're a non-filer, that's going to be a separate portal portal than family changes that you might want to register with the IRS. You know, obviously having two different IRS government websites only makes this a more complicated and more challenging process to to folks. The White House did release a new website, which, yes, now puts us at three different websites. (laughs) So they released a new website this week to try and streamline some of the information. So for any folks who are confused about what they need to do. The White House does have a new landing page that tries to help people sort through this. But yeah, as you mentioned, anytime we're talking about taxes, the IRS, it's never, ever easy. Yeah, it's a great program, obviously, but man, is <laughs> they make it tough. These uh, expanded credits end in December. President Biden has called for a four-year extension to all of this. This would need congressional approval. How does that look? I mean, is there support for something like this? Yeah, that is a great question, and we don't have the answer to that right now. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was actually asked about this during Thursday's briefing, whether or not Biden would accept a spending package that's being negotiated right now with senators, if he would accept something that didn't have the extension to it. And she said that Biden was open to changes to his proposal, which kind of leaves the door open for there to not be that four-year extension. But, you know, a lot of progressives, Democratic progressives have said that they want to make this permanent, not just a four year extension. This needs to be permanent. You know, this is just a huge wave of money that's going to be going to a lot of families can be up to three hundred dollars per kid per month for some folks. So this is going to be a huge challenge and battle. I think we're going to see on Capitol Hill in the coming days as we continue to talk about these infrastructure and spending package negotiations. Lauren Egan, White House reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This week, Britney Spears scored a victory in court on Wednesday that might be the first step in ending her conservatorship. It was another emotional day as Britney Spears broke down in tears telling Judge Brenda Penny that she's extremely scared of her father and accused him of conservatorship abuse. The big win came for her as she was able to name former federal prosecutor Matthew Rosengart as her new lawyer to represent her moving forward. Spears said that the conservatorship has allowed her father to ruin her life, and that's where her new lawyer will start. Rosengart has called on Jamie Spears to voluntarily step down as her conservator, saying that it's in the best interest of his client. And beyond that, the Free Britney movement is getting some supporters on Capitol Hill that couldn't be further from each other ideologically, all pushing for reviews and more oversight on guardianships and conservatorships. Lawmakers from Elizabeth Warren to Ted Cruz are interested in shedding light on the system, but the federal government's role in these programs is limited, and it's largely left to the states. 
For more on all of this, we'll speak to Victoria Colliver, California healthcare reporter at Politico. Talk about strange bedfellows. We have like Ted Cruz and Elizabeth Warren agreeing, or at least in concept, on something. That is quite a feat here. But I, I think what really resonates here is here's this young, successful woman who has been able to perform and conduct herself through a number of years. And she's been under this legal guardianship for 13 years. And I, I think that makes people wonder, like, if someone like Britney Spears can't break through or of this type of arrangement, what hope is there for the rest of us? And it really sheds a light on the potential of, you know, abuse for a lot of other people with this. There was a lawmaker that said she was a voice for the voiceless. And in, in that sense, it definitely rings true if somebody so famous and successful, this is happening to her. I mean, obviously other people that can't speak up for themselves or maybe someone's not willing to pay attention to them. This is definitely going on for them. So briefly, before we get into kind of what the federal government can do and then what states can do, because this is largely a state matter, what is the allure for each side of the political spectrum on this? Well, I believe that, um, you know, some people look at this as, like, for example, California, I think this is a surprise that our laws are so outdated because we see of ourselves as kind of progressive and, you know, into people's freedom. So that kind of leads to the progressive side where people think, you know, individuals should be, have a right to control their body, their reproductive health, all sorts of aspects. I mean, she was talking about how she can't even ride in the car with her boyfriend, things like that. And then you have the other side, the more libertarian side, who looks at this also as a freedom issue, just from a slightly different political spectrum there. But it still hits on all that idea that here we are in this country, we're supposed to be free, but then there's a situation in which people can be under these conservatorships and that can't make basic decisions about their lives. What are lawmakers trying to do there? What are they open to doing? Um, because as I mentioned, their, their role is limited right now. Yeah, I actually was surprised my colleagues in D.C. Has, um, did a lot of work on the what the feds can do, you know, and things like due process and kind of overarching protections the feds can step in and look at. And also just even having Congress people at that level taking a look at that, that, you know, makes it relevant to, to the whole country and to all states. But really, I, this is largely a state issue in the sense that our conservatorships are guided by states. And like I said earlier, I think that California, I was surprised looking into this, that our laws are as outdated as they are, because we do kind of think of ourselves as a state where these types of protections would apply. But there you have it. One of the issues that as people are starting to turn some attention to it is kind of the insufficient knowledge that lawmakers themselves had about kind of the scope of this whole system and, and the hard numbers that we have. I guess they don't really even know how many people are in these guardianships and conservatorships. So that's, kind of, that's kind of one of the things that they're trying to wrap their heads around is how big is this right now? Exactly. We really don't know. We don't know on a federal level. We don't know a state level. We have a much better idea like what's going on in our prison system, things like that. We have no idea that, well, we have some idea, but it's just not very accurate. Some of the reporting from the counties to the states to whatnot, there's just a lot of holes in that. And if you don't understand the scope of a problem, you, you really can't address it. And, you know, and of course, through the Britney situation, we're finding out a lot of things that you would think someone would know, especially someone like her, of course, who's been performing and doing things. You know, she didn't know she could petition to have this guardianship ended. Right. She didn't know that about, um, you know, her, she wasn't able to pick her own legal representation. And I think that all is rather shocking to the general public. And that's the next part of this, you know, so on to California, right? Experts don't even know how many people are in conservatorships in California, but they do know that a lot of them don't know their rights. To your point right now is what you're saying is 
Britney Spears testified she didn't know she could petition for this stuff. And those are the legal processes she has to go through to get out of this. And she, she, you know, whether she wasn't informed or what, you know, she didn't know about that. So what's happening in California specifically with this? Uh, People are calling for kind of a bill of rights. So people do know what what they can do. Yeah. There's several pieces of legislation that are been going through the system because we've, we've known this is a problem. I learned through this process that California has like two different types of conservatorship, one for people who have serious mental health and substance abuse disorders and can't make decisions for themselves. That's one kind. The other kind that actually Britney Spears is under is one that tends to be used for people with developmental disabilities or dementia, things like that, more organic brain disorders. And actually one's really even harder to get out of. But on the legislative side, the bill that seems to have, it has the most traction, at least going through most right now, is one that would create greater accountability, a little bit greater transparency transparency for professional conservators or fiduciaries and require them to do things like post their fees and it would give the greater powers around penalties if they're not acting in the best interests of their clients and and also they would allow greater ability to investigate claims of abuse and I think that's very important but once again a lot of people look at that and say and even the author of this bill would admit that's just a start there's more to be done. Yeah, and as you mentioned, uh, in this kind of two-track system that California has, Britney Spears was moved from one to the other, so she kind of lost some of those protections, where, as you said, the probate conservatorship can go on indefinitely, so she's kind of stuck in that moment there for now. Victoria Colliver, California healthcare reporter at Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Bad news for L.A. County, as it will once again require residents to wear masks in indoor public spaces, regardless of their vaccination status. And public health officials once again are worried about super spreader events as we see lagging vaccination rates and these rising COVID cases. There's less mask wearing and social distancing. People are going out more and attending large gatherings. Studies have shown that 10% of people infected with COVID could be responsible for 80% of the spread. For more on all this, we'll speak to Denise Chow, science reporter at NBC News. Super spreader events kind of have been happening throughout the pandemic. It's just that when cases are a lot lower as they have been prior to now, you don't have as many opportunities to have these really large outbreaks. So the reason that feels like a lull is because we were having sort of lower case counts across the country and now sort of we're seeing that tick back up. And as a result, we are seeing some of these larger outbreaks, as you mentioned. And the thing about super spreader events is that they can kind of happen anywhere where there's large gatherings and where people are sort of vulnerable. So if they're not vaccinated, if they're hanging out with other unvaccinated people. And it's really sort of these events that are of such concern because they're kind of like the spark that leads to an inferno. And so all of a sudden in an area, you may go from having just a few cases to then exploding into sort of hundreds of cases, as we've seen in a couple of recent examples, is there was a church camp in South Texas that eventually led to at least 125 cases. And there was another summer camp in central Illinois that had 85 infections. So this is what we're talking about, these sort of explosions of infection. Yeah. And just not just in the United States, internationally, also, you mentioned the article, there was a disco party that was held uh, in the Netherlands that had about 160 cases tied to it. And uh, even the Mexico pageant, I think half of the contestants ended up testing positive there. So, you know, it's happening all over the place. And obviously, you know, in pockets of the country where vaccination rates are low, this is an especially concerning thing. 
Yes, absolutely. And like you said, there was international examples as well. But it's not just these big events. It's not just the big parties and and the big stadium events. It's also there was a birthday party in Australia where 24 people were infected and, and the people that were not infected happened to be the ones that were vaccinated. And so these things are sort of the events that really seed the virus in communities. And that's why they're of such concern, because then it sort of explodes exponentially. And then you get into situations where it really kind of gets into an out of control situation. You know, one of the things throughout the pandemic also that we haven't really been able to nail down why is why people are super spreaders. I think the way they kind of broke it down was about 10 percent of people infected for COVID may be responsible for about 80 percent of the spread. Yeah, this is an area of active research, and it's a, it's a kind of a big mystery still at this point. We don't really know. Scientists don't really know why some people are super spreaders and other people are not. They don't really know why not all super spreading events are created equal. There's sort of a lot for us to study, and, and scientists will be looking at this and trying to understand this for years, I suspect. But essentially, like you said, there's sort of this idea that a minority of people are responsible for majority of the spread. And that may have to do with circumstance or the environment that they're in. This is a virus that transmits through airborne particles. And so it could be that, you know, you just need to get enough people into an enclosed space, into an indoor space with a big enough gathering. Or it may be that there's some biological reason. It could be that maybe these people who are super spreaders, that they somehow have more virus in them, or it's somehow in their mucus in a different way than it is from other people. So this is sort of an area of active research and and kind of an ongoing mystery at this point. So all of this leads to the big worry that nobody wants to reimpose certain restrictions again, obviously social distancing, mask wearing, you know, nobody wants to go back to these lockdown type situations again. But these are the worries as as the Delta variant continues to spread. And, you know, human behavior is kind of one of the toughest things to control in that we're all over it. (laughs) Nobody wants to go back to that stuff. And we want to have fun again and kind of get back to normal life. So that's one of the biggest things to contain right now as well. Yeah, and a lot of the experts that I've spoken to, they're not advocating to reimpose lockdowns. I don't think anybody is really for lockdowns unless it's absolutely necessary, right? These are very disruptive. There's a lot of mental health issues, economic issues that come with lockdowns. And so I don't think anybody is really saying that in order to stop this, we need to you know, have people quarantine at home again. I think the idea that you know, people that I've spoken to have said that it's changes in behavior and that can be just being extra cautious and perhaps in an area where there is a, a lot of virus circulating, where the cases are going up, that people should wear masks again. And, and maybe it's like little changes like that that can make a really big difference. And of course, the biggest change of all is just sort of doubling down on vaccination efforts. The vaccine is kind of this big, really effective wall of defense against infection and against especially these large outbreaks. And so in areas where there is lower vaccination levels, that's one of the biggest things that people can do is go and and get vaccinated. That's exactly right, because we've been seeing cases go up in a lot of pockets of the country. But by all accounts, they're saying that's, you know, like 98 percent happening among people that are unvaccinated. So it's important to get that protection there. And, you know, these super spread events, we'll we'll see as, uh, you know, we're right in summertime. A lot of events are happening. We we did a story on the podcast about uh, Wyoming. They have very low vaccination rates, and they're coming up on their Frontier Day celebrations, like a 10-day rodeo starting next week. So a lot of stuff to monitor on all of that. Denise Chow, science reporter at NBC News, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.